Broadcasting from the Business Radio X studio in Alpharetta, it's time for Profit Sense with Bill McDermott. Good morning. Welcome to Profit Sense. This podcast dives into the stories behind some of Atlanta's successful businesses and business owners and the professionals that advise them. We help local business leaders get the word out about the important work they're doing to serve their market, their community, and their profession. I'm your host, Bill McDermott, and this show is presented by McDermott Financial Solutions. When business owners want to increase their profitability, they don't have the expertise to know where to start or what to do. I leverage my knowledge and relationships from 32 years as a banker to identify the hurdles getting in the way and create a plan to deliver profitability they never thought possible. We have two great guests on the show today. Stacy DeWitt, CEO with CWK Network. Stacy, welcome. Hi, Bill. Good to be here. And Stephen Becker with Becker Automotive Group. Stephen, so glad to have you on Profit Sense this morning. Thank you, Bill. Hello, Stacy. Hi, Stephen. So, Stacy, let's start off with you. So, we first uh, started working together and getting to know each other in, in March of uh, 2019, introduced uh, through a mutual friend, uh, Connect with Kids Network, CWK, is an educational media and technology company. Also owns the nation's largest nonfiction video library on social and emotional learning. So about CWK Network, what does the company do? So, Bill, we use the power of storytelling and we call it the power of media and the promise of education to work with school systems and child-centered organizations around issues of social and emotional learning. So that would be the social and emotional issues of our times, improving student mental health, and increasing equity for marginalized populations nationwide. And so talk a little bit, certainly we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, There's a lot of, of pressure felt, uh, getting students educated, teachers frustrated with the process. How has CWK leveraged its business to serve these communities in a time of a pandemic? You know, I think we are, Bill, it's interesting, in a very transformative time in America. And that's been um, something that we have really been able to work with school systems and other organizations to build. What we do is go in and build digital platforms where we can have a common conversation about the issues that, you know, impact our lives. And so for us, um, it's been a unique time to really be able to put a digital platform in place and share some of our content, which I said before is the power of story. We t- we All of our content is documentary style and it allows teachers and students and parents to virtually have the conversation begin, um, continue to address social issues and emotional issues that are having such deep impact on students during COVID. Um, teachers can work with the students virtually to have conversations and op- get students to open up about how they're feeling during COVID and how we're addressing things like anxiety, um, depression, um, high-risk behaviors, concerns that they're having, and parents can weigh in too. And so in that way, while COVID has been 
really a difficult time. It also has been a creative time and opened up pathways for digital programs that school systems weren't um, involved with as much before. Now, as you know, the whole market's gone digital. Sure. Now, I'm going to dive into storytelling a little bit. You know, the classic story is you have uh, you have the main character who has a problem. Uh, they're headed towards uh, failure, uh, but they meet a guide along the way who steers them away from failure and ends up in success. So talk a little bit. Obviously, the main character in your story is the student. But how has CWK been the guide that steers these students away from failure and helps them find success? Well, it's really interesting. You know, our company, I come out of a a media and legal background. We also have, that's why I say it's the power of media and the promise of education. A lot of educators that are working with us as well that come out of the classroom And what we've tried to do is typically when you're dealing with social and emotional issues that impact children, the first thing you have to do with a child is meet them where they are. And really, honestly, that's true in anything in life. That's true with adults as well. What the research shows is that if I can meet you where you are with a story and I can tell you a story that you can watch and it can resonate with you on some particular issue. And it might be different for different kids. So it's kind of like poetry or music. When you're listening to it, you hear something that resonates with you. If I can do that and have an adult in the mix in that story or an adult in the classroom who can guide you through what you're feeling, what you're thinking, and get you to see what's going on with you and do some self-awareness around that, then you have a chance to walk down a more successful path. So what we know from the research is that when I can connect with you emotionally through the power of story, there is a significant, significantly increased chance that you will have a positive behavior change. And what's interesting for that and interesting for the listeners is that's not true just with children. That's true with adults that's true between a husband and wife. That's true between an you know aunt and niece. Um, it's it's true between a mother and child. If we can emotionally connect using the power of story, our educational research in the classroom, which we've been doing for over a decade, shows that the improvement in positive behavior change is significant. And I think that's really really critical in the time that we're in, because we are looking at a time of great social change and a lot of division and misunderstanding. And when you can use this power of story to come together, meet people where they are, allow them to have a conversation that is respectful and a safe place. It is amazing the transformation that you can see start to happen and how we can unify groups rather than divide them. Wow. The power of storytelling is something that is incredibly impressive. Now I want to, uh, walk back a little bit and talk about the history of CWK. So talk a little bit about what was the initial inspiration for forming the company and then come forward with us with how CWK has become the company that it is today. Okay. I'll try to do this quickly because (laughs) take your time. (laughs) So it's interesting. My husband and I have been really in the entrepreneurial world um, since we met 
Um, he um, owned a gourmet food company, of all things, a gourmet cookie company for 10 years um, and sold out to his partner. I was in television working as a reporter and an anchor and had gone back to school and had become an attorney and had started working with juveniles um, and um, started working with juvenile court and the juvenile code in the state that we were living in. And my old television station came to my husband and I when he sold out and said, we have this idea. Will you start producing documentaries and programming for television stations for parents on social issues? And so we invested a little money and said that we would. My husband runs the financial side of the business. I've always been um, at the helm of the creative side of the business. We got national syndication of those local documentaries. And what we did at the beginning, but this is pre-internet. This shows you how long we've been around. Um, the, internet, the internet was around. It just wasn't what it is today. We put programs for parents on televisions and we developed a corresponding curricula for school systems. Um, so students would watch it in class and parents would watch the counterpart on television. Over time that evolved. And as digital streaming became more mainstream, we began building bigger platforms for school systems but always and, and, and bypassing the television documentary and putting all of our streaming video online for school systems. And always, though, always, I was working in um, as an assistant prosecutor in a tiny town, and I saw a lot of children that could not make their lives a success because of the circumstances that they were in and because their families lacked education. And so as social and emotional learning, character development, drug and alcohol prevention, that sort of stuff started to come onto the scene. My husband and I both had a passion for making a commitment to do a business together and to build something that would help families become educated about how to you know, do things differently and break the cycles of poverty and break the cycles of marginalization. And that we believed we could do through storytelling. And that's what we've done. And that has really always been our mission from, from day one. Well, and CWK actually has a 22 year operating history and still going. So by the way, you did a wonderful job of taking 22 years in a very short period of time. It's been uh, well, it's been a ride, Bill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so as you think back over uh, over that period of time, are there two or three things that you feel like you and your husband and the company have accomplished uh, that you're most proud of? Um, yeah, I think there's been, you know, um, I think there has been pivotal points in our history um, the first thing is to stay flexible and be willing to reinvent yourself as the market changes, which is what we did. We started out in television syndication. Um, at that point, we made our money through license fees from television stations, and education was a smaller part of our business. But as cable television came onto the scene and as the Internet came onto the scene, television stations willingness for license fees to pay license fees for local production changed. So we had to pivot and we began to pivot by seeing being willing to sort of step back and say, okay, where can we have impact? What's a market that works for us? And that became education. So that was one, 
really, really big change for us. And we actually, over time, evolved out of the television market and into more of an educational market and building digital platforms. Um, the other big piece has really happened in the last probably um, 10 years or so. Um, we've really gotten very, very focused on equity-related issues and, um, and working with large school systems. New York City Department of Education is our largest client, and they are also the largest school system in the country. But we really started to develop relationships with large school systems. And not only do they use our content now, but we also tell their story. So they can improve social and emotional learning and mental health using our content on our platforms. But we tell their stories as well. What are they doing in equity? What are they doing to improve mental health? What people don't realize is that some people realize, I think a lot of people don't know just how much school systems are on the forefront of social issues and social justice issues in this country. So over the last decade, we have been working with large school systems to tell their own stories and to really build platforms where the resources that school districts are creating are available to the public in their local communities and really helping improve individual and family lives. And so those have been two pivotal moments, but I think the big piece for us has always been our ability, you know, as one of my dearest friends says, you know, there's um, the freest man is the man in chains. So when you're out there creating a business and you want to stay true to your mission and you're making a payroll and you're doing all the things you need to do as an entrepreneur to be able to flex and to see the paths that are opening up before you and to reinvent yourself. And I think we've been successful at that. Well, yeah. And case in point on that is your newest initiative, uh, Defining Us. So certainly uh, I'd like our listeners to hear a little bit about your newest initiative. What are the issues that Defining Us is addressing and how did it come to be as really part of how your firm continues to reinvent itself. Yeah, we're most excited and very proud of this initiative. This is something that has been in the works with us for about six years. It's definingus.org. It is a national platform with some of the leading school systems and the leading voices in education coming together um, to actually form a network that educates the country far beyond the classroom around the strategies and uh, practices that are going on in school systems that are actually changing social issues across our nation. Uh, We call it uh, America's classroom for social change Um, online. This is a digital community classroom. It's a platform. Um, We're doing a series of national documentaries on issues like race, um, uh, sexual minorities, gender, uh, mental health, Um, physical and mental ability, all the things that in our country um, we have, people have felt marginalized, pushed aside, um, are are in populations that have not previously had a voice. Again, what a lot of people may or may not be aware of is that schools are taking that on. They're on the front lines. It's our opinion that educators are the ones that are sort of the voice of reason. Um, They're typically not on one side or the other, 
but they really are getting up every day, going to work every day, going into those classrooms every day, and cutting through the chaos and confusion that's going on in our times and providing really proven successful solutions. So we're telling all their stories in uh, documentaries that are, are coming out starting in January. Um, a series of documentaries and have a national platform with resources that are free to the public. Um, corporate partners are signing on to help support that um, businesses on the back end, that sort of thing. But the resources that are on the site you can get to and use, and they can be used in your family to have a conversation about race, to have a conversation about really any social justice issue in a positive way. This is about unifying people this is about bringing families together. It's about bringing communities together, using research-based strategies and using the kinds of tools and tactics that seem to be working in schools. So this is my passion. Um, this started six years ago when uh, we were hired to document a grant out of New York City Department of Ed to show not the deficits of young men of color, ninth and 10th grade black and Latino boys, but what their successes were and how they could succeed when they had the proper tools and when they had people that cared about them and we had, had people that were promoting them. And so it was at that time, the executive director of that program and I got to be very good friends and started to have a vision for defining us now with what's going on in the country and as divided as we are, we hope that this is a place for hope and healing. And for individuals and community members and child-centered organizations and corporate partners to go where they can learn more, because we often hear in this debate, what can I do? And this platform provides the resources and tools that tells you as an individual what you can do, as a corporation what you can do, as a school system, all kinds of best practices being shared. This is truly transformational. If you were to, in your imagination, walk 10 years forward, but then have the opportunity to look back, what is, what is the hope uh, for this initiative 10 years forward, but looking back to today? I think the hope for this initiative 10 years forward is for um, this platform and for the group, because we're, we're collaborating with Los Angeles Unified School District, New York City Department of Education, UCLA, Columbia, experts out of Yale. It's quite a crowd. And there's so much to be learned from people who have spent their lives dedicated to these issues. And I say this as a media person, but they never get the airtime. In the traditional media, it's not really all that exciting to cover this kind of work because it's hard to tell it in a sound bite. It's sure. hard to tell it in 10 seconds. And so our goal is to bring a platform that allows us to elevate these voices and truly be part of the national dialogue and to say to every person in America, educate yourself. You know, I, I have to say, Bill, um, education is a word that comes from the Latin root educo, E-D-U-C-O. And that means to draw from within, 
to change from within, to transform from within. That's what education is really all about. And so the idea here is to give education a voice and to get communities to come together by educating themselves about people that are different from them, looking across the table and listening to somebody who has a different point of view with an eye, with an open mind to say, I'm going to educate myself to understand why you feel the way that you do and to really bring people together. And for these resources for schools to have districts, to have a place where they can share resources and get them out to the community because the good parts of education, schools are not, schools got their problems. We've all got our problems, but in terms of a political sector, a media sector, those are the things that are driving right now what's happening in this country. And we believe that education should be part of the conversation. Stacey, this has been a great discussion with you this morning. If someone wants to get in touch with you or with uh, CWK Network, uh, what is the best way for them to either learn more about you and your firm or even learn more about Defining Us? What's the best way to get in touch? Defining Us is probably the best place to go right now, definingus.org. You can also go to our website at connectwithkids.com. But defining us is where we're really uh, focused a lot of our resources and time. And there is a telephone number as well as a um, form that you can fill out to contact us on defining us on, on defining us. And we actually have live people that are checking that all day long, every day. It's not just an automated thing. So we will get back in touch with you if you reach out defining us.org. Stacy, thank you so much for coming on Profit Sense today and telling your story. Uh, and I'm excited about the future for you and your firm. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure and a thrill. Stephen, it's incredibly nice to meet you. And um, we are we love working with you, Bill, and it was great to be here. Great. Have a good day. And now I'm going to turn to Stephen Becker. Stephen is CEO of Stephen Becker Automotive Group. Uh, Stephen's been an expert on collector cars for over 40 years. He's considered a world-leading authority on 1960s-era Shelby American automobiles, including Cobras, GT350s, and GT500s. Also, Stephen was one of the youngest people to be ever selected as a finalist for Ernst & Young, Inc. Magazine's Entrepreneur of the Year in the early 90s. Stephen, welcome to Profit Sense. So glad you're here with us this morning. Well, thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on the show. I'm excited to be here. So, collector cars mm. are they? Are they investments? <laughs> you know, um, there are numerous articles out there. I've been interviewed numerous times over the decades, and I truly believe they are investments. Absolutely, I believe that that there are several brands of cars that have been built in the past and even even coming into the 2000s where they made limited production or they 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 tickled the funny bone of somebody that wants to buy something uh one way or the other and um it, it is my opinion that a majority of the cars at least that I deal with are not only you know cars to go out and enjoy and run around in and go to shows with and take your family out in and stuff but at, at the end of the day they are investments you know, and people love to collect things. You know, I can remember as a young boy, uh, I I loved to collect baseball cards. Uh, frankly, I think if I still had some of those baseball cards I collected back then, uh, they would be investments too. 
<laughs> yep. uh, so of the all of the cars out there, you've kind of focused your time on uh, Shelby Cobras, uh, also the classic Mustangs, which I remember well, uh, GT350s, GT500s. Uh, any particular reason why you have chosen to focus on those? Uh, and I know you focus on others. Right, exactly. Well, I have definitely over the past uh, decade and a half or so been asked to widen my berth. You know, if you can do this on the Shelby end or this on the Mustang end, why can't you do this on the Hemi Cuda end? Or why can't you do this on a on a, on a, on a different uh, make or manufacturer of automobiles? So I've certainly widened my berth. I, I like telling people that uh, the only kind of knowledge I have is the knowledge that is shared uh, and that I learn something new every single day. And that the way these cars were built way back then, there were never two cars built the same, even if they were going down a production line of two or 300,000 cars a year. So it's tough to, it's, you know, it's tough to, to, to say, well, this thing is absolutely correct for every single car and, 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 and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, um, I think that, um, uh, when I was 10 years old in 1977, uh, I went to a newsstand and I picked up a hot rod magazine <laughs> and on the cover was a Shelby Mustang and it had everything wrong with it. Uh, from, from the 1960s there, it had flames, it had side pipes, it had Kreger wheels. It, it was burning rubber. It was doing everything. And this is 1977 now. And I read the article with such interest that I bought the magazine and, and I read about Carol Shelby. I read about his cars. I read about everything he did. And at the very back of the magazine, it had a thing that said, if you want to thank Carol Shelby for the 1960s muscle era of cars, here's his address. You can write a letter to him. So I did. And uh, he wrote me back and I did another one and he wrote me back. I did a third one. He wrote me back. Finally, uh, I wrote him and through some investigation, and at that time, everything was through magazines and, and, and uh, classified ads and everything. I said, I, I know where several of these cars are that you built. And I said, they're going up in value. And he wrote me back and he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll back you. I'll give you the money. You find the car. We'll send it out here to California. And if we have to restore it or fix it or whatever, we will. And then we'll sell it in my name. We'll title it in my name and, and sell it. So... Um, between that time and now, uh, when he passed in 2012, we figured that he and I had bought and sold somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2,500 cars, uh, out of the 17,000 or so that he built between 1962 and 1970. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, it was it was a huge undertaking. Um, even back when when I was when I was a little kid, I, I tell you a little snippet here. Uh, one day, I had sent Carol a, a request for a check for a substantial amount of money in 1977 money, and he called my my house at nine o'clock on a Thursday night. And my dad answered the phone. And my dad's a periodontist, and and and, and doctors have the mentality that a car gets you from A to B. Doesn't matter what it really looks like or whatnot. It, you know, the, the oil change, you, you change the oil when the light comes on, when it says you have no oil. <laughs> it's just, it's just that, that was my dad. My dad could really care less about Carol Shelby or anything that I was doing like that. And he picks up the phone and Carol says, Hey, Doc. Uh, he says, Carol Shelby. And my dad said, Hi, Shelby. How are you? And they had never talked before. And so um, Carol had explained that Stephen had sent this request uh, by mail to, for this big check. And he wanted to talk to me about it because the car that I was looking at had been basically left abandoned on the side of the road after the races. They won the Le Mans and everything in the 1960s. 
So my dad said, well, Carol, I don't know where you are in the world, but because uh, he had houses everywhere in the world and a big game ranch in South Africa. And he said, I don't know where you are, but it's nine o'clock at night on a Thursday night here. And Stephen's already gone to bed. He has to get up in the morning and go to school. And so Carol said, OK, no problem whatsoever. And so they had a, a little bit of a pleasantry. And then all of a sudden, uh, Carol says to my dad, he says, uh, man, you know, he said, what, what is Stephen studying in college? And my dad said, you, you, my dad immediately went into the, Carol, we're having problems getting Stephen through the sixth grade because of you. Every single moment that he is waking and living, he is buying and selling cars and parts and this side of the other. We're having a tough time getting him through the sixth grade. And my dad said, you could have heard a pin drop. There was 45 seconds of silence from the world famous Carol Shelby. (laughs) God blank. He said, I knew there was something going on. He said, I get these expense reports from Stephen and, and, you know, they're very, very meticulous and detailed. And if he goes and he spends a quarter on a bag of M&Ms, he puts it all in his column. If he goes and spends 15 cents on a Dr. Pepper, he puts it, God, he was screaming and yelling and raising hell with my dad. And then at the, at the end, he said, I cannot believe that I've been, that I've been sending money and doing all this business with, with a 12 year old and a sixth grader and a sixth grade. And my dad said, no, I Carol, actually, you've been doing business with him since uh, since he was in the fourth grade when he was 10 years old. <laughs> and so he told my dad to say that the check's in the mail the next day and uh, and that you tell Stephen we're not going forward with any other deals if he doesn't perform well in school and if I hear anything negative. And in 2010, he was the guest marquee at Pebble Beach, which is a huge event they do every, every uh, August and they honor a marquee. And it was his turn to have a marquee honored. And he and I were sitting there and I handed him a, a book from an auction the night before. And I said, you recognize the car on the cover? And he goes, well, I mean, it's an R model Shelby GT350. I said, yes, sir. I said, you recognize anything else about it? He goes, no, I really don't. I said, you and I bought that car for $25,000 and we immediately sold it without ever taking possession of it for $50,000. And we thought we were heroes. We thought we had just busted the bank in 1977. And this was the specific car that my dad and him were talking about with the money. And I said, do you know, last night while we were sleeping, they auctioned that car off. And he goes, they did. I said, yeah. I said, you want to know how much they got for it? He goes, I don't think so. I said, well, let me just tell you that it brought $1.75 million. Oh my God. And he he wow. about flipped over backwards. Now wow. the car has changed hands numerous times. I mean, you know, obviously it's been restored and et cetera, et cetera. But, but it just goes to show you when you talk about an investment, if I had had the wherewithal, you know, uh, you know, I always ask Carol, what is your favorite car? And Carol's reply is the next one. So with that being said, I have to say the same thing as far as investment prospect. But I mean, if you if you looked at those numbers and you looked at what those cars brought even 10 years ago, some of these cars are triple what they were 10 years ago and they were already on the high side. So um, some of these banks, some of these uh, BNY or BYN Mellon banks, some of these guys contact me and they've actually got investment arms of the bank that deal with nothing but high profile and high, high wealth clients who have collections of cars. Um, one of my clients was Eddie Van Halen and, uh, and I sold a Porsche and I sold the Porsche. Uh, to, and this was like three months ago before he died. I sold the Porsche to Jerry Seinfeld and I had never done any business with Jerry and he actually had an intermediary. And I found out by accident that Jerry bought the car, but uh, Ed was quite impressed with it and whatnot. And, uh, and that was, you know, that was just a normal day in the life of me. And you just never know who's on the other end of the phone. You never know where the deal is going to go. Um, I ran into a guy the other day at a grocery store and he said, I haven't seen him in 20 years. He said, so, uh, so what do you, what do you do? And I, and I looked at him, I said, what do you need? 
<laughs> so, I mean, with that being said, what, what do you need? You know, cars, no cars. You know, it doesn't it doesn't matter what I do. What do you need me to do? And that's always been kind of my mantra as far as the, the, the entrepreneurship goes. Yeah, that is a great story. So Carol Shelby told you what his favorite car is. So what's your favorite car? My favorite car is the uh, 2005 uh, Red Ford GT that I have sitting in my garage that I bought brand new back in 2005. And uh, I love that car. And uh, I have uh, I've carried that car with me. And, and, and that's a car that is that has more than doubled in value. That was one hundred and fifty thousand new if you could get one. And now they're well over three hundred thousand dollars. So wow. every time my wife walks by it, she says, you know, that beach house that's in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> I say, yeah, I do. <laughs> you mean the one that's my company car? Wink, wink. Um, so, but that is my favorite car, the 2005 Ford GT. So you've been an entrepreneur pretty much your entire life. I've never had a job. So one of the uh, two questions, really first, uh, I'm interested, what's the best advice you've ever been given as an entrepreneur? And then second, it's lonely at the top. Yep. So talk a little bit about those two things together. Well, I think the best advice that I've ever been given was actually uh, when I saw a a TV show when CNN first started back in the early 80s with uh, Ted Turner. Uh, And Ted Turner said, early to work, early to rise, work like hell and advertise. So I got to say that covers the whole gamut. And that was back in 1980. And so that's probably the best advice that I've ever heard. Uh, most of the time you have a story behind it. Most of the time somebody gives you advice from real world. And I don't think you could get any more real world than a 24 hour, you know, news network going out there when nobody else was doing even close to 24 hour news, putting all your money into it, your name behind it and everything and having it be the success that it was. Um, as far as lonely at the top, it is extremely lonely at the top. And it is very, very difficult, even when dealing with my bankers, even with dealing with the general public. Um, you know, a majority of these people, they don't, they're not entrepreneurs. So you're, you're dealing with a totally different crowd. And when you start talking about making payroll, you start talking about, you know, million dollar line of credit to buy 50 year old cars and, you know, these kind of things that, that you just, you, you know, it, it becomes noise. Uh, they don't understand it. They don't. And so I try to keep a, a very close circle of advisors around me, including yourself, uh, who have been with me for a number of years. I believe I was one of your first clients back when the whole world came apart in 2008, 9, and 10. Uh, Where? I was one of your very first clients, uh, and uh, and you and I did a lot of talking together. And um, and, and so, you know, um, I, I just try to stay engaged. I try to stay engaged with my clients because the majority of my clients are captains of industry. They're, you know, CEOs, they're presidents, and this, out of the other, obviously, to be able to afford something like this is a luxury item. Uh, uh, you know, I, I try to, to gain wisdom and gleam knowledge in the way that they work. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's about the very, very best I can do. Well, and so I think, you know, in, in the work that we've done together in the past and other CEOs I've worked with, it is lonely at the top. Uh, it's very difficult for you to be accountable to yourself. And so having that personal board of advisors um, to help you be accountable uh, from what you and others have told me is absolutely critical. 
Is that kind of the motivation for you or would you add anything to that? Yeah. You know, um, my 22 year old daughter graduated from FSU and she immediately went out in the world and she was very well sought after uh, photographer for, for weddings. And so I told her the first thing I said was get yourself a board of advisors because she, she, she started from nothing and she bootstrapped her, her entire business and um, she is doing extremely well and she's very independent. But the first thing she did is she got herself advisors. I, I you know, put her in touch with the president of the bank. She's got him on speed dial. I, I put her in touch with this. I put her in touch, you know, and I introduced her to these different people and watched her walk along. And uh, I, I didn't force her into anything. I, you know, gave her a big berth of, 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 of things that she could look at that, that I've learned over the decades. And, uh, and she has taken some of that information and really, really want, run with it. But uh, regardless if you're a president of a company that's got 10 million employees or you're a self-employed individual such as myself that, you know, basically is the, uh, what is it, the cook, the bottle washer and the waiter, you know, I'm the, I'm the whole nine yards, I'm the whole 360 scope. Um, there's got to be accountability. Um, I think with, with COVID, my word for 2020, and I know a lot of people have a lot of words for 2020 and there's none, there's none that's really, really pretty, but my word for 2020 is pivot. And I think that as an entrepreneur that you have to pivot in order to be critical and in order to be crucial to whatever industry you want to go to. And that, you know, one day you might be selling million dollar cars and the next day you might be doing landscaping at somebody's house, but you're always working, you're always building and you're always, you know, up and and out and, 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 and just running forward. Don't look back. I mean, that's, that's, that's a good one. And for our business owners out there who are maybe thinking about a pivot, could you just kind of briefly walk through kind of the decision-making process that you went through as you have seen others pivot or maybe even you pivoted yourself? Yeah, I think that um, it's very important, especially now with COVID and the way that everything's going. um, I think it's very, very important to believe in yourself and believe in what you're doing, whether or not you're selling something, you're manufacturing something, you're distributing something, you're offering a service like yourself mm-hmm. to somebody, a, a very, very valuable service that you offer to, 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 to select people. Um, you know, I think that's so important to remain focused on that and to, sh- and to cut out all the noise. And I'll tell you, I heard something just real quick. I, my, my son came home, my ninth grader, one of my two boys came home and he, he said, dad, he said, do you realize that in the, the span of an average of two weeks that, that a person today in a span of two weeks takes in as much information as a person did a hundred years ago for their entire life? Wow. So if you break that down and think about that and you think about everything that's being thrown at you involuntarily, voluntarily, or anything else, you have got to be able to carve out some, some time where it's just you and you, and you've got to be able to relate that to other people so that they can, they can work with you and, and, and get things done or work through people to get things done and keep your, keep, keep your mission alive. And that is not easy. Um, but I think that, you know, there's never a good time to start a business. It's today. Today is the day to start the business. There is never a good time. There's going to be economy. There's going to be this. There's going to be, you know, politics. There's going to be all this stuff going on. And you and you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So if you truly want to become an entrepreneur, if you really, really want to burn the midnight oil of 100 hours a week, focusing intently on something that you've got that you're 
that you're proud of, be it a, a service or, or you know whatever it is, go for it because there is never going to be a good time. Just like you know, my dad said to me, "There's never a good time to get married. There's never a good time to have babies." But you know what? If you fall in love, you get married. When you're ready to have kids, you have kids if the Lord willing. And that's how it works. And yeah. and and so that's 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 what I would tell. Them. Folks, great advice from Stephen Becker, Becker Automotive. Stephen, if someone wants to get in touch with you, uh, they have a passion for a particular car. How do they get in touch with you? What's the best way? So my cell phone, I sleep with it under my pillow. So that is uh, 770-900-5532. They can also go to beckerautogroup.com. Or they can just simply Google Stephen Becker and Carol Shelby, and I'll be in the first one or two lines. (laughs) Also, I am on your email marketing list, uh, and I salivate every time I receive one of those with those beautiful, beautiful Shelby Mustangs. How does someone sign up for your email list if they want to? On the bottom of the website, which was just totally redesigned by my 18-year-old son uh, while he's attending Clemson, he did this stunning job on this website made it so much easier for people to use if you just scroll down to the very bottom it just asks for your first and last name and an email address and you'll be put on the list and you don't get anything except something from me nothing gets sold nothing gets traded nothing gets bartered and uh and you never know what shows up in your email box it's kind of like christmas (laughs) (laughs) even thanks so much for coming on profit sense today it was great having you well, thank you as well. I, I look forward to, you know, uh, the future, the future, the future is so bright. It is, it's, it's a great outlook right now. And I would encourage people to, to engage themselves and go for it. It is indeed. So thank you so much. Stacy DeWitt with CWK Network. Also, thank you again for coming on Profit Sense. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. It was great to listen to Stephen as well. Um, enjoyed uh, talking with both of you. So, folks, if you want to keep up with the latest in pro-business news, follow us on social media for the latest stories. If you want to listen to future ProfitSense podcasts, you can find us on ProfitSenseRadio.com. This is ProfitSense with Bill McDermott signing off. Have a great day.